Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome once again to our study in the book of Romans. Uh, tonight, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, and the title of our study is No Excuses. Now, this evening, we're going to take a, a major turn uh, in, in the book of Romans. Um, as we've seen over the last couple weeks, Paul has made a declaration. And the declaration is this, the gospel is the power of God to rescue believers from the wrath of God. Now, he has made that statement in two of the most important verses in the book, and that's verses 16 and 17. Now, we turn to tonight to verse 18, and we're going to go through a section from Romans 1.18 all the way through 3.19, and this whole section is basically a demonstration by Paul of human sin and guilt before God. For example, we're going to get to chapter 3 and we're going to hear things like there is none righteous and all the world is accountable uh, to God. So in other words, what he's trying to get across to us in this section is that everyone is a sinner and everyone is guilty before God. God. So he starts in verse 18. And how does he begin this verse? Well, he begins by giving the reason that the gospel and a gift of God's righteousness is necessary. It's necessary because the wrath of God is revealed, he says, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, the tense of the verb here, is revealed, is a present tense continuous action in the Greek. In other words, what he's saying is it's happening right now. It's not just something that happens in the future. Now, obviously, we all know there's coming a day of wrath. There's coming a day of, of judgment. And Paul uh, uh, basically validates this in Romans 2.5. But even in advance of that, the Bible teaches us that God's wrath is actually still being poured out or being revealed today. And this is happening in three ways. Number one, universal human death is revealing the wrath of, of God. You know, in the, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and, and God said, "In the day you eat of that fruit, the day you disobey the one command I've given you is the day that you're going to die, the day that death will enter into the human body and into creation. And every human death since then is God's judgment or God's wrath against sin. The second way we see God's wrath revealed today is in universal futility and, and suffering. We see it in hurricanes and tornadoes and, and cancer and cold and all these other things that we have to deal with. I think it's in Corinthians where Paul says the creation is groaning. Um, it, it's not meant to be this way. The, the very fact that we live with this suffering, we live with this futility, is another uh, way or method that God's wrath is poured out on sin. The third way, and this is the one that Paul is really uh, going to focus on here in chapter 1, is the degradation of human thinking and behavior. Uh, three times, at least in this chapter, we're going to hear this phrase, God gave them over. Romans 1.24, God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity. God gave them over to degrading passions. God gave them over to a 
depraved mind. In other words, what Romans 1 tells us is that God is revealing his wrath by actually giving people up to be more sinful. Now, why does he do this? Well, verse 18 tells us, because in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. Now, that is an amazing statement. You know, it, it always astounds me, and one of the reasons I love the Bible is how something written 2,000 years ago uh, is still relevant today with its analysis of the human condition. If you've heard me teach for a while, you're going to hear me say this uh, more often than not. You know, culture changes, civilization changes, technology changes, human nature, the human condition does not change. Uh, 2,000 years ago, they had the same anxieties and the same fears and the same lust and the same desires as we do. Human beings do not change. And so what Paul wrote 2,000 years ago is just as relevant today with its analysis of the human condition. Now, I want to stop right here and give a quick warning. It's easy when we read about people being suppressors of the truth to look at somebody else and say, well, that's them and that's not me. But the fact is we are all truth suppressors by, by nature. In fact, when, when Paul gets to the end of this chapter and he starts chapter 1, he'll say this, You have no excuse, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things. See, the fact is, by nature, we are wired to be truth suppressors. We're all wired to overlook our own failings. I've said this before, how, how quick we are to forgive ourselves and how slow we are to forgive other people. How, how quick we are to see failings and offenses in other people, but we don't see it within ourselves. We're, we're wired to suppress that. And when the truth hunts us down and shines its light on us, to reveal who we are, let me tell you, we'll dodge and equivocate and lie and blame and, and accuse and deflect anything to keep the truth from having its full effect in our lives. You see, this is what Romans 1.18 is all about. We are, by nature, suppressors of truth. Now, that, of course, begs a question. What is this truth that we suppress? Well, verse 19 tells us, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. You see, the truth is that God exists. And our response to that truth should be to honor Him as God, to be thankful to Him for all that He's done for us, for all that He's given us, and of course to glorify Him in all that we do. Yet that is the truth that we absolutely despise. We hate that truth. We suppress that truth. Now, why do we do it? Well, verse 18 told us, because we're unrighteous. We are unrighteous. See, and it's not just that we're unrighteous. The Bible teaches us that we actually take pleasure in being unrighteous. 2 Thessalonians 2.12 says this, They all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Jesus said this in John 3, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness. So it's not just that we're unrighteous. We love being unrighteous. It's not that we, we, we want to run to truth or we want to run to light. No, we are perfectly happy 
in our unrighteousness. Now, what does that mean, that we are unrighteous? It means you love self-exaltation. It means that we love our independence. We, we love being the God of our own life. William Ernest Hensley in his, his uh, famous poem, Invictus, probably uh, put it better than anybody when it describes a human condition. He said, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We love that. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. We want to run our eyes, our, our own lives. You see, and, and the fact is, because of that, because we love it, our mind will inevitably distort and suppress truth in order to protect what we love. You see, that's what unrighteousness is at its very core, putting self and sin above God and His truth. Now, I want you to notice something, because this is very important. I want you to notice it's a love-hate issue. It's not a, it's not a head issue. It's not a knowledge issue. It's not a, an educational issue, an information issue, a data issue. See, the issue of truth is, at, uh, is an issue of the heart before it's an issue of the head. It, it's a moral issue, not a mental one. That's why what is needed is not more education. What is needed is not more knowledge or, or more facts or more data. You see, we need a new heart. That's what's at issue. Now, I want to stop right here because someone might raise an objection. You know, we're going to find out as we go through the book of Romans that Paul is, is like a lawyer. And he's, very, he's a very logical thinker. And you've got to understand, Paul has preached all over the Mediterranean. He's preached in synagogues. He's preached uh, on Mars Hill in front of philosophers. He stood on street corners and marketplaces. And he has heard every single objection that you could ever hear. So by the time he sits down to write this letter, he doesn't even wait to hear it. He'll just go ahead and put it out there. You may say, you'll hear him say that over and over. You may ask. So he goes ahead and addresses objections before he ever hears them. So, so here's the objection. We might say, well, you know what, Paul? You say the truth of God, that God exists, is suppressed by the human heart. But what about those who don't have that truth? How can God be angry? How can God be wrathful at people for suppressing a truth that they've never heard or that they've never had? Listen, that's a really good question, and that's a, that's a question that many of us have asked. What about people who are living in the Amazon and they've never been exposed to the gospel? They weren't raised in Christianity. How are they held accountable before God? Listen, I've often said this for the, about the Bible. The Bible will pretty much answer any question you ever have. This is a very valid question, and it'll answer it if you'll listen and you'll accept it. Now, a lot of times we may not like the answers, but that doesn't change the fact that the Bible will answer these questions for us. So here's the question. Let's put it another way. Are there people in the world who have an excuse, who one day stand before God and have an excuse and say, I didn't know. Nobody ever told me. Paul's answer to that question, no. No, there is no excuses. Everyone is guilty and deserves the wrath of God. Now, Paul is going to lay out his argument in three steps. Like I said, he's kind of a lawyer, so we'll, we'll watch how he does this. It's a three-step argument, part one, part two, and then he has a conclusion. Uh, let's look at part one first. Uh, 
This is the first part of his argument. God makes himself known through his creation. Look at verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now I want you to notice something very important here. It's not up to the man or the woman to find the truth that God exists. No, God takes it on himself to reveal that to men and women. God does it. You, it's not, you don't have to go look for it. God takes it on himself. Now, how does he do it? Well, he told us very plainly. He does it through his creation. Psalms 19, 1-4 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day they pour out speech, and night to night they reveal knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, there's no language where their voice is not understood because their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Let's go back. There, there is something incredibly interesting here about the Greek. And that's in that last phrase in, in, verse, uh, in verse 20. It says, Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, the Greek word there is poema. And what's interesting about that is that is the word from which we get the word poem. Now, you see, when we sit down and we write a poem, there is thought and there's intelligence and there's design and there's planning. You know, think about it. The wind might blow and create a letter in the sand, right? By chance, that might happen. But chance will never write a poem. And you see, this is the point here in, in this phrase that Paul uses, poema. The universe is a poema. It's like a poem written by God. God acted. God thought it out. God planned. God created. He created this work of art that we all can just see with our, with our eyes every single day. And in that creation, God reveals himself to mankind. And yet, I want you to listen to a couple of quotes some of the smartest scientists and intelligent people we know. Listen to what they say. Richard Dawkins says, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Francis Crick said this, Biologists must, con now listen, Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Why would they say that? Because when they open the, 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 the treasure of scientific knowledge, everything is screaming at them, design, design, design. Find, you know, a few years ago when they discovered DNA, they couldn't believe it because DNA is like computer code. It just screams design. It screams God. And yet they say, you have to keep in mind, it's not design, it evolved. In other words, the manifest truth of God's poema, God's design things, must be constantly suppressed lest scientists and anybody else have to be brought face to face with the knowledge of God and, 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 and have to acknowledge that they have a maker and have to acknowledge that they are to be thankful to him and honor him and glorify him and have to acknowledge that they are dependent on him. So that's the first step of Paul's argument. God makes himself known through his creation. Now, 
Here's the second step. Although men and women knew him, they did not honor him and they did not thank him. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let me tell you, nowhere in this world does God receive the honor that he should get. Nowhere in this world does God receive the gratitude that he should get. The fullness of his glory and the extent of our dependence on him are constantly suppressed by human beings across this planet. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking, well, what about us? What about believers? What about Christians? Aren't we thanking him to the fullest? Aren't we honoring him to the fullest? Not really. I want you to think about this for just a moment. We all have good days and bad days, right? I'm sure you're like me. There are days when I have a really good day and I, everything just seemed to go right. And if I look back over that day and I try to think about maybe a sin that I committed, I'm like, I can't remember anything. I didn't, I didn't have any, uh, I didn't have any dust ups with anybody. Uh, you know, what for whatever reason, it was a good day. And on those days, we feel pretty good about ourselves. But I want you to think about what Jesus said in Matthew 22. Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. Now listen, does any of you do that at any one moment in your life? At any one moment in your life, can you honestly say that you love God with all your heart, with all your mind? with all your strength, with all your soul. You see, that's the first and greatest commandments, and I don't think a single one of us goes five minutes without breaking it. See, what I'm trying to do here is bring us back to reality. There's not a one of us that really loves him with all of our heart. We want to, but we just can't seem to do it. And we can't sustain it for any amount of time. There's nobody that loves him and honors him and thanks him perfectly in this world. And that's the second part of his argument. In spite of knowing God exists, knowing that we have a creator that we owe our life to, we fail to honor him, thank him, or worship him as we should. So what's Paul's conclusion in this third step of his argument? They're without excuse. Romans 1.20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. See, the fact is, every human on this planet is a sinner. We have broken God's law, and we deserve the wrath of God. That is why the gospel is such good news, because God grants us the righteousness he requires if we'll only believe in his Son. Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture in Romans. And Lord, we know that as we move through this chapter, we're going to be dealing with some difficult uh, subjects. But God, I thank you that words written 2,000 years ago are just as relevant to my heart today as they were to Paul's heart then. 
God, help us to open our hearts, open our minds, not just to, to hear with our ears, but God, to apply it in our hearts, to know you, to know who you are, and God, to see why the gospel is such good news. We ask this in your son's